Lord, would you fill our hearts this morning with the hope and vision we have just sung about. The glorious day that we look forward to, the end of your gospel's work and the joy of eternity. Make yourself known to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as most of you know, um, we have four children in our home, one of whom is still potty training, as far as an update goes on that. And as you might imagine, uh, with two adults and four kids, one of whom is still potty training, we generate a significant amount of laundry each week. Um, it's kind of fun to watch the reactions when we have guests staying with us, and you know, it's laundry day, we do laundry day, regardless of somebody staying with us, and we haul out the pile of laundry to see the you know, the gasps at the, at the mountain. And then we go get the second one that's just as big, and it's just, you know, it's kind of funny. But we have developed a system for our laundry days. Uh, and uh, so after the kids are down, uh, Carissa and I drop the pile of laundry in the living room, and we fold clothes while we watch some TV show. Uh, usually it's, you know, one of the cooking shows or, or home improvement show. But one of our current favorites right now is Fixer Upper on uh, HD, HGTV. And if you've seen the show, you'll know why. Uh, not only are Chip and Joanna the best friends that you have that you've never actually met in real life, you just feel this connection. Uh, the work they do is really cool to watch. Now, they can take something that's really, literally should be condemned very often. And turn it into the best house on the block. It's, it's fun. And you know, and you follow all of the dramatic turns of the, you know, they run into something. It's going to cost more money. We got to make a phone call. And all of the drama involved of clearing the budget hurdles and making it work. And then, of course, each episode ends with the big reveal at the end. And so, you know, the couple whose house is being renovated stand there and there's this, you know, life-size screen with a picture of their old house in front of them. And then they pull the screen back, and there's tears, and people are hugging, and, and you turn the TV off feeling that, you know, the world's not such a bad place after all. <laughs> well, this year we have been exploring how the gospel of Jesus applies to every aspect of life. Um, how it's not just the power of God to begin a relationship with him, it's the power of God to transform us at every stage of our relationship with him and in every aspect of life. And so we've talked about the gospel in me, how it changes us personally, and uh, the gospel in the church, how it ought to shape us as a congregation in our relationships, our leadership, and so on. We've talked about the gospel at home and at work and at school and in the public square. And then most recently, we've been talking about the gospel to the ends of the earth, how this message and what it does is something that ought to be multiplied as more and more people uh, come to know the Lord Jesus. And last week, we looked specifically at the goodness and the necessity of global missions, uh, that the gospel is for all nations. Because Jesus is for all nations. Now, God's vision has always been to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and every people group. Uh, from his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 17, that behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, to Jesus' charge to the disciples in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
And so we looked at that, uh, that call and that vision last week, and God has promised that when the gospel has been proclaimed among all people groups, then the end will come. So Matthew 24, 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the work of the gospel that we've been thinking about all year long, the work of the gospel in our own lives, in our own relationships, and among the nations, that is going somewhere. There is an end in sight, a goal, a destination for gospel ministry. There will be a big reveal at the end, a conclusion. And all of the twists and turns of of walking with God in a fallen world, all of the renovation work that's happening in each of our hearts, uh, all of the reforming and refashioning of our characters and the, the transformation of our relationships, the expansion of God's kingdom, it's all moving somewhere. There is an end. And so what is the big reveal? What is the completion of gospel ministry. What will it look like? When that screen is finally pulled back and we see it, what will we see? What are we looking forward to? And will it be worth all of the hard work of following Christ day in and day out, of fighting against sin, of striving for holiness, of laying our lives down for one another, often in the face of trial and opposition? What is the end? The ultimate goal of the gospel, the ultimate hope of the Christian life. That's what I want us to look at and think about and dream about this morning in the final chapters of Revelation. And what we're going to see here is that the ultimate goal of gospel ministry is the unmediated presence of God. The unmediated presence of God. So look with me at Revelation 21. Now, Revelation uh, is one of these books that we call apocalyptic literature, uh, which simply means kind of unveiling or revealing, hence where we get the title Revelation. It's revealing something to us, and it's, it's the kind of book that reveals a heavenly perspective on earthly realities. Uh, we often associate it with kind of the crazy imagery that we find in books like, you know, the first part of Ezekiel and Daniel and, and here in Revelation, the angels covered in eyes and the locusts that look like horses and epic end-of-the-world battles and so on. Uh, but if you can think of, if you think of a curtain separating the hidden, unseen, heavenly realm where God resides and the earthly realm where we live, if you can imagine this curtain separating those two realms. What apocalyptic literature does is it comes and it peels back that curtain just for a moment so that we can get a glimpse of the world from God's perspective. And so it's filled with this highly symbolic imagery to to communicate its message, to, to give us a picture from God's eyes of things that are and things that are yet to come. Not so that we can know all of the nitty-gritty details and argue them with our friends on Facebook and so on and so forth, but so that we can live faithfully in the present in light of what the future generally holds. That's what 
That's the vision and purpose of apocalyptic literature. And what we see in chapter 21 of Revelation is a, a highly symbolic picture of the big reveal. When the screen is pulled back, what will we see in that day? This is the preview. And the goal here is, is to strengthen us with this vision to keep striving and persevering in faithfulness to God, no matter how hard our journey in faith gets. That's the goal. And so to kind of help us, it's a big vision, there's a lot going on there. So to help us wrap our heads and our hearts and, and our imagination around uh, this vision in 21 and 22, what I want to do this morning is offer five observations uh, from this passage. Five realities of God's promised new creation. Uh, if you were with us at Sandy Island this year, some of this will be review. But I don't think we can ever dream of the end too much. So, uh, But uh, let's, let's go ahead and look. Revelation chapter 21. And our first observation is this. That the central focus of God's new creation is the unmediated presence of God. What is on display more than anything else is the presence of God. Uh, it dominates the vision. The chapter starts that way in chapter 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It starts focusing on the presence of God. It ends focusing on the presence of God. 22 verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. So it opens focusing on the presence of God. It closes focusing on the presence of God. And as you might expect, everywhere in between, the emphatic, uh, the emphasis of this passage is the presence of God among his people. And you may have noticed that there's a whole lot of geography going on in this passage. John sees this vision of the new heavens and new earth, and, and then he's taken on his on this guided tour uh, of what looks like a, a kind of garden-like city that's laid out in the shape of the Holy of Holies. So the angel shows him the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and, and as he's giving his tour and pointing out different details, he makes this kind of somewhat a seemingly offhand comment about the dimensions being a perfect cube. Its length and its width and its height are all equal. Verse 16. And then there's this garden in there with the tree of life in it. I haven't seen that one for a while. And if you're familiar with the Bible, though, and you think about this imagery in light of the rest of the biblical story, what do all of these places have in common throughout the biblical story? The presence of God with his people. Where was it that... that God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. That was in the garden. And what is it that made the holy city Jerusalem holy? It was God's presence in the temple. What's the only other structure in the entire Bible to be described in the dimensions of a perfect cube? The holy of holies within that temple. So the emphasis here, even in the geography, is on the presence of God among his people. And then when you get to the heart of the city, the highlight of the tour, verses uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 22 through 22, 5, 
where you would expect to find the temple at the center of the city. Instead, we read this in 21 verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So the center of the city, the center of this vision, is the unmediated presence of God. That's the first and most important thing we need to understand about the end, where we're going. And you think about that and contrast it with uh, what so many people usually think about when they think about heaven today. Uh, For some, what they expect to find at the center of the city, at the highlight of the tour, is family. Heaven's basically like a big family reunion where you're reunited with all of your deceased relatives. Uh, For others, what they expect to find at the center of the city is pleasure. Basically, whatever I love most about this life multiplied by infinity. So, you know, on all-you-can-eat buffet where you never get full, and a Star Wars marathon where you never have to stop for a bathroom break. That's going to be Something like that. For others, yet still, the center of the city offers closure. Finally feeling good about yourself. Uh, this is the vision in Mitch Albom's book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks describes that version of heaven as, quote, Nothing more than an excellent therapy session, where friends and helpers come and tell you how innately wonderful you are. They help you reach closure. In this heaven, God and his glory are not the center of attention. It's all about you. Or as Adam Kirsch of Slate uh, magazine puts it, instead of angelic choirs, it now seems we'll be greeted in heaven by the sound of a billion voices all talking about themselves. <laughs> and, and so, you know, these are some of the common ideas and expectations we have. And when you think about them, in light of what Revelation actually shows us, they pale in cheap and embarrassing comparison compared to the glory of God on display. That's the only kind of vision that's going to really give us hope in the meantime, right? When I get, you know, when we get to the center of the city, it's not me. Sitting there on the throne. It's not my, you know, deceased grandparents. So I look forward to that reunion. It is the glory of God and of the Lamb. That's the center. He's the glory. He is the goal. He is the center. The unmediated presence of God. That's the first observation. But what else can we say? Number two, the presence of God will fill the whole new earth. Presence of God will fill the whole new earth. Uh, this unmediated uh, presence will be true, not just of a single city, but of God's whole new earth. And, and you know, one of the greatest misconceptions about the he- about the Bible's promise for eternity is that it's going to be some sort of eternally disembodied existence, where we just kind of float on clouds with wings and a halo and a harp and and do I don't know what for all eternity. But that's the popular image. Uh, it's an image that comes more from ancient Gnosticism and modern Looney Tunes or Farsight comics than it does from the Bible. Uh, 
The conclusion of Scripture shows us that the ultimate promise of heaven is very tangible, very physical. It's not a disembodied spirit, but we look forward to a physical resurrection from the dead, just like Jesus rose from the dead. And not just a spiritual realm, but a new heavens and a new earth. That's what, G, that's what John sees in that very first verse in chapter 21. And that's an echo of God's promise clear back from Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. For the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The first earth was good when God made it. God's plan is not to scrap it and just go with the non-physical reality, but to rather to renew and remake his good creation that had been fallen. And so, so the vision that Isaiah receives, that John receives, is this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. But then in the next verse in both passages, that new earth is described in the imagery and language of a new Jerusalem. We see it in Isaiah 65, and we see it in Revelation 21. So he sees this new heavens and new earth, and then it says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I think what's happening here is that John's not just seeing uh, part of God's new creation, but a symbolic description of the whole thing. So if you think about it this way, the way that apocalyptic imagery often works. Uh, so all of the Bible's imagery of God's special presence with his people rendezvous in Revelation 21. So what was true of the garden and true of Jerusalem and true of the Holy of Holies within the temple, that's going to be true of God's whole new earth. God is there. He will be there. His presence will fill the whole thing. Which is why... When you get to the center of the vision, there's no temple. There's no need for a temple if the presence of God fills the whole thing anyway. The, the whole purpose of the temple in the Old Testament was where you would go on earth to meet with the God who lives in heaven. And it was kind of like this intersection or overlap of these two realms. And so you would bring your offerings to the temple. You would pray toward the temple and God who is, is in heaven would hear you and so on. Well, if God fills the whole new earth with his unmediated presence, you don't need a temple anymore. You have God himself. He's the whole point. His presence, his glory, fills the whole thing. The two realms of heaven and earth are now married and become one. God's space and our space has no curtain between them anymore. That's this vision of what will be true of God's renewed earth. And so the central focus is the presence of God that will fill the whole new earth. Third, third observation. God's presence will mean intimate communion between God and his people. God's presence will mean intimate communion with God and his people. There's more than just geography filling this chapter. There is relationship filling this chapter. Uh, verse 3 tells us that uh, one of the most important things about our final home is not just that God's there, but that God is there with his people. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We were made for a relationship with God in the beginning. We are saved for a relationship with God through Jesus. In the end, we will enjoy intimate, eternal relationship with God forever. And in that new creation, our communion with God will be unmediated. Now, I've used that word several times uh, this morning, but think uh, about what that means uh, with me. There will be nothing separating us from God's presence. Nothing. No curtain, no temple, no veil. The last time that that was true, the last time that God dwelt with his people in an unmediated way was the Garden of Eden. Ever since then, we've had to have some sort of protection, some sort of distance. We've been unable to enter his presence fully. Not just anyone could approach him. He, he dwelt behind the veil. And, and you couldn't, not just anyone could go there and not without washings and sacrifices. And if anyone looked upon him, they would be dead. But because, as Hebrews tells us, Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because Christ is our great high priest, we who are covered by his blood through faith are invited into God's eternal, unmediated presence. John shows us a vision earlier in chapter 7 of all nations gathered in worship in the presence of God. <clears throat> 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No separation, no temple, no veil. Revelation 22 verse 4 says that they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Think about that promise. What would have been a death sentence at any other part in the story is our unhindered joy for all eternity to see the face of God. Unmediated, intimate communion with our maker and king to whom we belong just like it was in the beginning. That's the promise. And if we dwell with God in the presence of his unveiled glory, then we can expect, number four, that in the presence of God, everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. There's a beautiful and rather well-known conversation between Gandalf and Sam in Lord of the Rings. When Sam is waking up uh, after the ring's been destroyed and the king of Gondor is on the throne and and he sees Gandalf and he asks him, is everything sad going to come untrue? 
And, and that's exactly what we see in this vision, that everything wrong, everything sad, everything that, that makes us long for change, everything wrong with this broken world will come untrue when we stand in the unmediated presence of God. Those who continue in rebellion against God will receive their just condemnation. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 21 verse 8. The problem of the fall, creation's curse, that's plagued the story all along. It's finally undone. 22 verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. No more curse. No more. Yeah. Everything is. It's, everything that we long for release from is gone. But instead, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In that end, we will finally once again have access to the tree of life. Again, think about that. We've been cut off from the tree of life since chapter 3 of the Bible, Genesis 3. And this whole time we've been unable to partake of that. And here it is in the middle of the city. And, and if you notice what the purpose of that tree is for, in chapter 22, verse 2. On either side of the river there was the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God is going to make all peoples whole again. There will be no more curse. As he summarizes in chapter 21, verse 4, which is one of my all-time favorite verses in Scripture. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the hope of heaven. That is the big reveal at the end. Everything wrong with this broken world, from the fear of rejection to the pain of having been betrayed, from our own personal failures to the unjust criticism we might receive, from the shame of our mistakes, the guilt of our sin, from the heartaches of broken relationships, of broken bodies, uh, of broken cities, a broken world, every tear, every sorrow, every sickness, every sadness, every doubt, every grief, every sin, God will take it away. It will be no more. There will be no more cancer stealing our loved ones. There will be no more fear stealing our joy. There will be no more sin wrecking our relationships with each other or with God. Everything sad will come untrue because God will be there. And in that day, the story will finally be over. Gospel ministry will be complete. And that's our final observation, number five. That the presence of God will complete God's plan for creation and his promise of redemption. You notice the wedding imagery in this chapter. What we see unfolding here is the consummation of all things. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. If you think about it, it's kind of funny how many happy stories that we either read or watch include a wedding in the end. Think of basically every Disney movie. That's how the, the consummation of it all is this great wedding. And I think there's a reason for that because in those stories, they're all really an echo and a foretaste of the greatest story and the happiest ending that we're looking forward to. And so we see it here in Scripture. We, we find the imagery of a wedding, which throughout the Bible is, is a common metaphor for the completion of God's plan at the end. The, the, the arrival of the bridegroom or the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in that day, this engagement period that we've been living in, since Christ came and did uh, his work of redemption on the cross, that engagement period will finally be gloriously consummated as he returns in the end. And God announces from the throne in verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the completion of the story. Now note, however, that he does not say, Behold, I am making all new things. That's not how it ends. It doesn't end with God scrapping everything and starting over. It ends with the glorious restoration of this fallen world, the revealing of the sons of God, the resurrection of the dead, the renewal of this broken earth. The whole biblical story finds its resolution here. Which is why uh, we shouldn't be surprised to see imagery from throughout the Bible showing up in this final chapter as it's tying the whole story together. You know, in the new creation, we uh, find the restoration and realization of the garden. So everything that Eden was supposed to be and become in the beginning, but wasn't able to because of sin, that's going to happen finally. The realization, uh, the purpose will be realized. And, and so, therefore, we see the tree of life there again. We see the, the city described in an image that kind of echoes the description of the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. Lined with gold and precious gems, uh, similar to the temple in Jerusalem. In the new creation, we see the final fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to Israel. So the garden's fulfilled, Israel's fulfilled here. Uh, the fruit of what Christ accomplished as God's faithful covenant son. So if you look at 21 verse 3, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's covenant language from the Old Testament. I will be their God and they will be my people. We see it again in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. And then, you know, you're on the tour of the city and, and the walls are gilded in the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. While the nations are bringing their glory into the city of Israel's king, just as Isaiah said they would. God's covenant promises to Israel find their final amen here. But it's not just the story of Israel that gets summed up and completed. Uh, it's the story of God's redemption for all nations. The redemption that he accomplished through Christ, and which was the message that the apostles carried to the ends of the earth. And so you see, not only are the names of the, the tribes on the walls, but the names of the apostles are on the foundation. They, they have their memorial here. 
This is the completion of their story too. And in fact, I think every chapter of God's great story of salvation will find its memorial in that city, in that day. Even the chapters that he's still writing through his people today. And who is at the center of it all? Who is at the center of it all? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It's his hand that will wipe away our tears. It's his glory that will give us light. It's his presence that will be our unending joy. And we will reign with him forever. Doing what we were made to do in the first place. To enjoy and reflect his glory. To represent his kingdom. To serve him as his sons and daughters. What the garden was meant to become. It will be forever. Which means that the end of the gospel is in many ways really a new beginning. That that though the chapter comes to a close here, there's a story that goes on being told for all eternity. C.S. Lewis concludes his Chronicles of Narnia this way. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the big reveal of God's plan of salvation. This is our happy ending, our hope. The goal of the gospel, the unmediated presence of God for all eternity, which is possible only through the blood of the Lamb. This is your hope when you are tempted to give up loving your spouse or shepherding your kids when you're tempted just to check out. This is your hope. It's your hope when sin entices you, when relationships get hard and life stops working the way that it's supposed to. This is your hope when you let other people down and when you're let down by others. This is your hope when the world tells you you've got it all wrong, that God doesn't care, he won't keep his word, if he's even there at all. This is the only hope big enough to fuel our perseverance and faith in the meantime, while we wait for Christ's return in this glorious completion. And this hope is for you. It's for each of you. It's for me. It's for all of us. It's for your family. It's for your friends. It's for your neighbors and colleagues. It's for every nation. This is the hope for everyone who sees their sin for what it is and their need for a Savior bigger than them and who are willing, therefore, to put the full weight of their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Hear God's invitation again in chapter 21, verse 7. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this inheritance. I will be his God, 
and you will be my son. Let's pray. Gracious Father, would you fill us with this hope? Lord, we confess that so often, uh, if we think of heaven at all, we think of such small things. And we confess that we simply don't think about it enough. That we just put our head down and, and try and work harder and, and grind it out and hopefully find some space and rest at the end of the day. Lord, would you help us to live each day in faith and hope of what's behind the screen, knowing that it will be far greater than anything we can imagine, knowing that it will deal fully with every problem and every frustration, everything that's wrong with life today, knowing that it will bring full significance and meaning to the whole of human history and that at the center will be you all of your unveiled glory and that will be our joy we ask it in Jesus name Amen